Thank you, Dee. <laughs> yeah, you guys go right through it, <laughs> right straight to it. Hi, everybody. I'm Dee, and I am an alcoholic. I, I don't like labels, but that is one that I will take because when I first realized that, that I'm an alcoholic and that's what they called it, I felt this huge sense of relief because it's like, finally, I know what I am. I fit in somewhere and they didn't ask me to leave and they kept telling me to come back and I was still welcome and I didn't feel welcome everywhere. So that meant a lot to me. And um, I don't know, my nationalities, people ask, or, or whatever you call it, cultural, ethical, e ethnic, um, whatever. Um, I don't know what I am because my family didn't talk about a whole lot of things. And so I've got like Scotch, Irish, Dutch, German, um, French, Cherokee, um, a few others that I know about and probably several others that I don't. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I can fit in everywhere or nowhere. I really liked that I fit in in an AA. Um, it gave me a bit that big sense of relief to know kind of finally who and what I am and this is what's going on because it had not really occurred to me that not drinking at all was a possibility or an idea that I would want to follow because I kept thinking if I could just get my life in order and accomplish these things that I need to accomplish, please the people that I'm supposed to please and get approval here and there and get enough money in the bank and, you know, get that house, that car and these things that I thought would make me feel secure, then I could drink a normal person. That attitude has kind of changed because after a few years of sobriety, I realized if I could drink like a normal person, then who the heck would want to? Because I really liked what alcohol did for me. Um, I don't, let me see uh, what it was like. Um, my family, my mom at least, was very private and uh, wanted to keep me, especially if I was the only girl in the family, more than a little isolated. She didn't like to mix with people. They had grown up like out in the country and they had moved to a small town. And to her, it was the big city. And uh, he was used to, you know, where you could go out for a walk and walk for 40 acres and not see any other people. And um, he didn't like that there were neighbors everywhere and she felt really insecure with that stuff. So for that and several other reasons, she wanted to kind of keep me at home. And she did encourage me to be a success in school and uh, not to let any of those boys get ahead of me just because boys were supposed to be smarter at math and sciences. She said, don't you dare step back. But then she would turn around and get on to me if I stepped forward on something. So I... I grew up kind of confused and, and uh, not sure about how things worked. And, and um, uh, I did make some friends in school. Um, but you know how kids can be awful to each other. And uh, some of the kids were awful to me. And I'm, I'm guessing I was probably awful to some of them, too, because I can remember getting in on that group think thing. And if the big group was making fun of somebody, that made me part of the group to you know, join
And so that's some of the things that I look back on and went, oh, my goodness, uh, there's a cat I can watch. Uh, <laughs> um, but I ended up kind of by the time I was in high school, um, I kind of walked down the halls. I, I did do really well in my classes, pretty much a straight A student, except for a couple of things. I remember there was a chemistry test that I walked out on one time. I just, my mind went blank. I couldn't think. I'd studied for it. I knew it, but I looked at that test, and I just couldn't think of anything. And it had nothing to do with drinking. It had to do with, I'm sure, pressure and things that were going on in my life that I didn't understand or know about. And I got up and left the room, and you just did not do that without permission. And I got in all kinds of trouble for that and accused of who knows what. A uh, big F waved in front of my face and all the guilt and shame. And uh, I was used to that because I'd grown up with but with my books, holding them close to me and my head down. I was amazed many years later when I would run into people from my classes that people remembered me and remembered my name and had had pleasant thoughts about me. But like somebody said, how come when we think people are thinking about us or saying things about us, we never think that they're thinking something good. We always think that they're thinking something bad. And she said, why don't you just figure that they must be saying something nice about me? Of <laughs> those kinds of things never occurred to me. But I felt cut off and I felt isolated and I felt like I didn't belong. And, uh, you know, other people, I compared my insides to people's outsides. Other people, like, you know, the girls that had every hair in place and, and um, all these people that were, their jokes were funny and they got along well with, like I said, I can't remember exactly where I left off, but starting drinking, that was a big solution to me because it made me feel better. It made me feel comfortable. It made me feel like I'd fit in. And I thought, and it was for a long time, a solution to my problems because it freed me from all those those worries, those fears, those uh, other people's expectations, um, that incessant thinking and worrying about stuff and trying to figure everything out because it just kind of didn't matter, you know, and it was just fun. And it remained that way for quite a while. And then as time went on, drinking was more and more and more what I thought about and more and more what I did. Um, let me see. When I was cute, I used to, I, I went to the liquor stores when I was 17 years old, which you had to be 21. And I never had any problem getting anything. I, um, I carried a sometimes a fake ID, which is a lot of what we did. And I did that the first times when I went from Oklahoma, where I lived, into Kansas, where the drinking age was 18, and we would drive up there. And so I started doing that when I was 17 years old, when I was still in high school. But uh, like some people whose stories that I've heard, I didn't really start drinking heavy when I was nine, because some people did that. But I was 17, and I was almost old enough. And so we carried fake IDs, but usually nobody asked me, thank goodness. Even though we knew that was a huge crime, we figured we're kids, we'll get away with it, you know. Oh, well, it won't be the end of the world, you know. 
and it was a lot of fun and I had friends and we went places and we did things and almost all those things involved drinking. And um, I got into college and then uh, quit that eventually. Uh, I had all kinds of reasons and discouragements. I was still making excellent grades until my very last semester there. Um, but the truth was, when I looked back at it, was that it just kind of was getting in the way of my drinking. And not only my drinking, my thinking. And like I've heard a lot of people say, when I got into AA, I came for my drinking and I stayed for the thinking. Uh, because I've discovered eventually that was a lot of it. And on, I took jobs where it was safe to drink. When I was 17 years old, it wasn't my first summer job because that was when I was 16. It was my second summer job. And I was working in this little restaurant, little family restaurant, but they had, they served beer. But you couldn't serve beer after like 10 p.m. and you couldn't serve it on Sundays. But there were these cops that would come, they would go out on fishing trips, and then they would come back and they would be in there. And I worked overnight for part of that summer because it was much better money because the drunk crowd would come in when the bars would close. And a lot of times they just kind of empty their billfold on the table and go, here you go, honey. <laughs> I love that. So I made much better money overnight. And uh, even though that was a difficulty with my family, I managed to survive through it because I remember my mom's attitude was, I don't care if you just got off work at 6 o'clock. 7 a.m. is the time to get up, period. <laughs> and I'm like, when am I supposed to sleep? But um, anyway, these cops would come in and they would want me to serve them beer. And I said, but that's illegal. I can't do that. You're just trying to trick and uh, they said, no, who's going to arrest you? So literally, they talked me into it. One guy got up, got his own. But there was hardly anybody else in there at that time. I said, I'm too young. You know, I can't serve it after these hours. And uh, I can't serve it on Sunday. And they said, oh, but we've been out fishing and we're really thirsty. And there was one of them was this older guy and he could wiggle his ears. And he always thought that would really impress me. But uh, they just wanted a beer. So anyway, so I served it when I was 17, which was highly illegal in my state. But anywho, um, time went on. I ended up taking more and more jobs where um, it was okay to drink. A lot of them where it was okay to drink at work. It was kind of expected. There was a crowd that did and a crowd that didn't. And uh, the more time I spent with drinkers, well, from the very beginning, I didn't want to be like those people who never drank because they were hard-nosed. They were no fun. They were critical and condemning of everything. They were perfect. And I knew I couldn't do that. And they looked down on people. And uh, I just didn't want to be like that. I would rather have fun and have a good time. And... I considered that a lot of us that hung out together were really caring about each other. And there were those jokes about honor among thieves and that kind of thing. And time went on and on. And I hung out in bars and then I worked in bars and then I worked in some pretty nice places. Um, resorts and, um, you know, five star dining. Uh, but alcohol was always certain it was always a part of it. 
And we used to joke that we could tell when it was eight o'clock because I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. I need to go to the bathroom and I need a drink. And uh, but usually it happened before then because I fell into the habit of it was so much easier to take a couple of drinks before I ever left the house to uh, oil the machinery because then you could go out and immediately um, start doing what you needed to do and feel comfortable. If you waited until after you were out, that was just wasting time. Whether it was that I was going to work or wherever, I ended up marrying a man I met in a bar. And long story, that's another long story. Uh, we eventually divorced because he drank more than I did. And uh, I could always point to him and say he was worse. There were always, I always kept people around that I could point to and say that they were worse. But honestly, I wasn't familiar with what an alcoholic was. The idea of it in my mind, and I don't think I heard that word, but in maybe a couple of times in that whispered there was Otis on the Andy Griffith show who was always drunk and spent the night in jail cells when the cops pulled me over they never arrested me they just said ah you probably need to go on home even when they pulled me over and I rolled down the window and all the smoke would just roll out the windows um but I was told at first in hey, we don't talk about that but it did. <laughs> and they'd say, just, you know, take your friends back to the college, drive on home, you know, take them home and then go home. Don't go anywhere else. And they would let me drive away. Um, I don't imagine that would happen today. I considered myself very lucky and very well thought of, even though we were not a wealthy family. My family was not wealthy at all on the lower social rungs. Um, but I made good grades and I was kind of well thought of in some and I thought a lot of that was thanks to alcohol. But I ended up marrying somebody that probably, possibly, in my right mind, I wouldn't have. They'd married. We were together for 16 years and married for 14. We had two boys. Eventually, that marriage broke up um, because he did quit for a while, but it didn't stick. And uh, things changed. It never was really very good, but... I can't blame someone else for that. And I can't, <laughs> my life never was all that good either. <laughs> and that's the thing, because that guilt and blame don't fix anything. Um, I may not have caused anything, but when I realize what's going on, if the problem is with me, that means there's a solution. If the problem is really seriously somebody else, there's no solution because I have no control over other people and I'm stuck with it. But since there's something going on with me, there is a solution. So anyway, through the back doors of Al-Anon, I finally found my way into AA and realized that alcoholic wasn't just Otis and it wasn't just that guy under the bridge or the guy laying in the gutter in New York City in a wool suit in the summertime with liquor in a brown paper bag. Um, it was me, and that it had nothing to do with how much we drank or didn't drink. It had nothing to do with bragging rights or drinking accomplishments or how much we spilled. What it had to do with was what it did to me on the inside. And on the inside, what it did was, at first, for many years, it was my solution, but then it stifled my growth. 
there's a couple of lines on the top of page 123 in the 12 and 12 that says something about us. Most doctors agreed that we were emotionally immature and grandiose and that sort of thing. And that kind of applied to me, even though I didn't realize it, because I was trying to figure this world out. And I was very responsible in many ways. I mean, my work ethics were much better than the, the work ethics of the man that I married, you know, because I could always point to other people and say they were worse. Although the crowd I hung around with just got a little lower and a little lower and a little lower in all of those ethical matters, because I didn't hang around a lot of people who were doing a whole lot better than me because uh, I didn't want that comparison. But at any rate, I eventually made it into AA and believed that it was me. Although even at that time, I was still hoping that if I could get everything in my life lined out the way it was supposed to be, I could drink like a normal person. Or it was just about controlling my drinking. Eventually, I found out there's no such thing because there's absolutely nothing that comes along in my life that I can't make worse by picking up a drink. Because that one drink is not where it ends. Uh, what I wanted then and what I still want of life is that sense of ease and relief that I get from picking up that drink. And somebody told me once upon a time that if you're not getting that in these rooms, Keep looking because there's more on offer and you can get that sense of peace and ease that you got from picking up that first drink because this recovery can do for us what we expected alcohol to do for us. If it was still working for me without those off side effects and the sad fact is it quit working for me because I only got that sense of relief for about the first 10 seconds when I picked up that drink. And uh, then after that, that thinking and the, the, all that yuck that I thought the drinking took away, it just was out. It ran away, all right. And it gathered all that stuff up and swirled it into a big ton of bricks and it would slam it right back down on my head. So it didn't make me feel better. And I was really upset because it wouldn't do for me what I wanted it to do anymore. Um, so I was miserable, and uh, I finally came to believe that continuing to drink or picking up that first drink was not my solution anymore. I came to believe that there was a bunch of people in these rooms that said something was working for them, and they were happy, and they were joyous, and they were free, and I wanted some of that, but I came in trying to figure out life and people, and how I could get along in the world, and how to get my life together, and what do I do with these doggone feelings that I have when I don't pick up that drink? I had no idea what else to do. Really miserable. And um, they told me that there was a better way to live, and I was trying to figure out the God thing, too. So in a lot of ways, I'm really glad that that God was in that book and in those steps because I was trying to figure all of that stuff out and they said this is something different. This is not that. If you want what you get from a church, go to a church. And I eventually came to understand that I wasn't trying to be 
to, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what I, I don't know what I believe, but I thought that was an important part of it. But what the people in the rooms of recovery did for me was that they freed me from all of that condemnation and, and guilt and excessive efforts to try to please and the hammer I was living under, both from other people and from what I thought I was supposed to believe from other people's beliefs. And they and and I they taught me through the steps and through hanging around with other alcoholics and listening to a lot of stuff that you dig that stuff up off the top and then you know, there's a saying that says, to thine own self be true. If you get enough of that stuff removed, maybe you can see what thine own self is. <laughs> because you can't be true to it if you don't know what it is. And it was hidden under all of that. And so, um, so what it did, eventually, I realized, and nothing, I mean, I've had epiphany moments. That usually don't last very long. They feel really nice. But the whole process was kind of a long, ongoing learning thing. And they said, keep coming back. You know, they said, keep coming back and give this a shot. Don't try to figure it out. Don't read that Bible. It'll just kill you. Um, just keep coming back. And if you want what we have, you know, you think something's working for us? I said, yes, that's step two. They said, you want to try it? I said, might as well. What have I got to lose and where else do I go? And they said, that's step three. Let's start on four. And it, they simplified all of this for me. And so that now when I hear people talk and I look around, it doesn't matter to me what other people think or believe or what phrases worked for them. What matters is what works for me. And the truth is, if we keep coming back, we're going to find it. And uh, they taught me how to look at myself and find out, you know, what is it that I do believe? What's been holding me back? What pisses me off? What's making my life miserable? Take a look at that and follow this through the step. You know, oh, I believe things should be this way. Well, why? Who told you that? Oh, well, maybe somebody lied to you. <laughs> so, you know, um, so that part of it has been a long journey. But the very first thing was how to make it through. You know, first you got to remove the alcohol. And keep that removed for a long enough period of time so that we can begin to find another way to live. Um, it's not just the alcohol because, you know, just removing the alcohol, if that's all I had to do, somebody said once, well, you know, if that's messing up your life, just stop. Well, you know, truth is, I didn't know what to do after that. Um, and that sounds ridiculous even to looking back at it, you know. Well, yeah, just stop. But, oh, man. What I was dealing with when I removed that was me. And so people in these recovery programs have taught me how to live, you know, how to look at me, how to find out what sits right with me. And then it doesn't matter what sits right with someone else because me is what I live with. I've, um, I've met a lot of people around the rooms. I'm just a little old lady from Oklahoma. You know, middle of nowhere, it don't matter. I'm not majorly connected to any really important people in the world. 
except in these rooms <laughs> and on these Zoom screens. I used to think of the world as this huge place. Uh, the town I grew up in was about oh, 10,000 people. It was impossible for me to imagine a world full of billions of people, you know. And so I had this idea that people who lived in other places were exotic. You know, the, the atmosphere was exotic. And, and uh, you know, I, I couldn't, you know, little old me, I couldn't do that. I couldn't live in other places. I've gotten to travel to a few places, and I found out that everywhere I go, there I am. And, wow, it's just another place to live. Different scenery, smells different beautiful things to look at, and human beings, <laughs> just like I grew up with. And and so I'm really grateful to Zoom, getting to meet people from all over the world and getting to hear everybody's stories. I, I don't know. It's just I can't explain or put my finger on the how and why. There's all kinds of scientific words there are all kinds of psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists who try to describe exactly what it is, um, who put new names on it. Um, I had a conversation with a lady just the other day, and I did some of those science classes and psych classes and work classes. And I learned a lot of new words and theories. And some of those have changed since then. But I had a really interesting conversation with another lady a couple of days ago who was very well versed in a lot of that terminology. And she was talking about like the polyvagal theory and how we do this and all these technical terms for how you do that. And I said, oh, yeah, I said, I'm familiar with that. That's just like the old wise, wise tale when you're when you're hot headed or when when somebody's angry and you say cool down <laughs> or you're you're getting too hot you need to cool off literally one of the best solutions in the moment is often just called washcloth on your forehead and she said yes that's actually one of the techniques used by blah 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 blah, blah. so i don't always bother to learn the terms anymore there's also truth to that you know shake it off when you're in a situation literally physically stand there and shake it off it helps it doesn't solve the whole problem but it helps so the terminology you know uh it doesn't matter what we call it it doesn't matter what we do with it what matters is what it works and that's one of the first things that some people told me when i came into the room you don't have to figure it out you don't have to understand it to put it to use just come along with us Hang out with us a while. Try to maybe follow a few few simple directions. Um, take what works for you. Take what you like. Leave the rest of it. That old guy over there in the corner that's mouthing off and telling you, by God, what you ought to do, you don't have to listen to him. He's kind of full of himself. You know? And sometimes it was a woman. you know. And, and it's going to be all right. Those are the things that helped me, the people that were there when I called, the people that, and I was frustrated, anxious, upset, and I felt like taking a drink, I'd call somebody, and they were far more caring and supportive of me than I was. And they said, you know, let us love you until you learn how to love yourself. 
but the goal is to learn how to love yourself because every once in a while you find yourself just completely alone and we can't always depend on something else being there for us so if i'm not in good company in my own head then i'm that kind of sucks doesn't it but that's a process has been a process to learn how to do that and it comes with practice and those little tiny things every day you know start taking care of yourself by drinking one four ounce glass of orange juice every morning don't worry about the whole big thing just try that one thing and gradually you'll start to notice that the things around you change and i didn't understand that i was always what's one gratitude list going to do what's one glass of orange juice going to do and just but these little things just built up and like i said i can't put my finger on it but it works and whatever it is we need if we keep coming back and we really want it we find it there's so many little things well one i was reminded of just the other day i heard somebody speak on um what was it oh it was a lady who just recently wrote a book um what was it slender threads anyway some of the i was reminded that you know some of the things that people told me were um you know like tradition 3 the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking and one old guy used to say something that went like and if anybody tells you different that's not a a <laughs> all that all those little places where it says you don't have to believe like i do or those places where it says this is the thing that really matters if there's an argument about it often in my head i say and if anybody tells you any different it's not a a so i don't have to frustrate myself with trying to figure out what other people believe or want me to believe i don't have to try to figure out why some particular little thing is working for them that doesn't work for me or it works for me but it doesn't work for them that's okay you know because uh we find what we need when we need it even if it's a little spoonful at a time and um you know every meeting that i go to every recovery thing i read every other time i talk to anybody else in the program that's one more penny in the bank so that when those tough times come along or that little thought tiptoes through my mind like oh i'm never going to get to travel through europe and eat and drink my way around the country trying out all these foods with the right wines that go with that little laughter comes along and just <laughs> that would not be your experience <laughs> that wouldn't happen it wouldn't go that way and it makes me laugh so when those pennies are in the bank then um and i keep them coming in because i'll get out there and forget that 2 plus 2 is 4 and i have to come back to these rooms to get reminded and even though i can't put my finger on it i know that coming into the rooms and hearing other people's stories and seeing other people go through things that i've gone through already myself or seeing someone go through something that i can't imagine have to go through and talking about it in these rooms i find the similarities and it gives me hope and it reminds me that i'm an alcoholic and that um i cannot drink safely 
because that's the way I'm made and that's how my mind works, however you want to define that. And there's absolutely nothing that comes along that I couldn't make worse by taking a drink, which is exactly the opposite of what I used to think, that it made things better. And once I got that all the way through me, that, you know, that's that step one to me. I can't make things better by taking a drink. It makes them worse. Then I began to be able to learn the rest of the stuff, but I never learned had it not been for all you people. And I get to get up in the morning and go, oh, look, the sun came up. It's another day. I wake up in the morning and I watch the squirrels instead of with my head down worrying about everything. I get to uh, wake up sober without a hangover. I get to have lovely friends all over the world and people I care about and that I know care about me, even when we disagree, because that's okay, too. And I love you all, and there's nothing you can do about it. Thanks for listening.